Welcome to Activate Church Podcast, and thanks for listening. We hope this message helps you, and we pray that God speaks to you through this week's message. Before I get started, I'm just going to pray. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for gathering all these women here together, Lord God. Father God, I know that you're here with us. I pray that you speak to us. Reveal yourself to us. I pray that you bring freedom today here in this place, Lord God. I pray that women become free. They're set free from all of the lies that they're living under, Father God. I pray that lives are come to you for the very first time and that those that are far from you come to you too, Lord God. I pray that you diminish me and you, and you raise up yourself. Let me just glorify you, Father God. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen. I want to begin by telling you that <clears throat> as I grew up, I really just believed that Christians were for mocking. In my mind, Christians were weak, unintelligent, and needing a crutch. In fact, I got enjoyment out of mocking Christians. I remember when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I saw some uh, Christians handing out flyers and I thought it would be hilarious if I would hide around the corner, write 666 on my head and come out and run past them, hissing at them like... (sighs) (laughs) This tells you two things. One, I was really, really naughty. And two, it really highlights the position that Christianity held in my mind. My childhood was turbulent. I was an only child to a single mother who was a prostitute, heroin addict and stripper. When I was little, my mum used to send me to school, to primary school, and I, she would give me $5 in the morning and I'd walk up the street and buy lunch and go, go to school. If she didn't have that $5, she would keep me home from school and I would go to work with her. She would take me to a place on um, Swanston Street called the Shaft Cinema. That's a strip club. So I spent my days as a child in, in the strip club. For me, that was kind of normal because that's just what I experienced. But in hindsight, I realised the detrimental effect that that had on me. I saw many, many things that a young girl should never see and I experienced many things that a young girl should not experience. My mum kept diaries uh, throughout the 80s while she was on heroin. And right now I just want to read you an excerpt from one of her diary because it paints a beautiful picture of the struggle that she was going through. That's me, my mum. 28th of March, 1987. Missed a few days writing. Everything has fallen in a hole again. I'm so hopeless, so depressed. I shot all the money at my arms. I hate myself so much. It always comes back to the same thing, selling myself for money and drugs to keep the pain away. The only thing I'm good for is getting stoned. My doctor says that I'm a dependent, hopeless junkie ruining my life. All my life I've thought that I was an independent, tough type of person, but it turns out I've been lying to myself all along. I'm really dependent, weak and hopeless. Please, 
If there's anyone like God or a spirit guide, now is the time when I need most help. I want to live out the rest of my life with Bindi in a normal manner. I don't know what normal is, but I'm going to find out if it's the last thing I ever do. When I was eight years old, I was removed from my mum. She was so deeply uh, involved in her addiction and her lifestyle. That's me driving the bus. I still remember that day. I couldn't believe my luck. (laughs) When I I was eight, I was removed from her because she was so deeply involved into her addiction. I didn't understand what was happening and I took that to be a rejection of me. I thought something was wrong with me. She didn't want me. I spent time uh, being moved from uh, numerous members of my family, my dad, uh, both my grandmothers, and uh, during this time and during my childhood, I was physically abused, sexually abused, and severely neglected. Because I had seen my mum in the strip club, I'd seen her prostitute, and I'd experienced sexual abuse, it meant that I developed the belief that all of my value was in my sexuality. It really, really broke my sexuality. Today, you don't even have to experience those things. You can just be exposed to porn, to the media, to advertising, to get and develop a really skewed uh, understanding, a belief around your sexual experience. If your sexuality is broken, it so does not have to be. God can absolutely 100% heal that. When I was 13, I moved back in with my mum. She completed the methadone program, uh, but she still drank heavily and smoked marijuana every day. At that time, she introduced me to drinking and smoking marijuana, and I began to smoke it and drink with her, drink with her regularly and smoke marijuana with her on a daily basis. Despite that, she began to write, and she quickly found success as a writer and a playwright. I was in a band with my mum, I played drums, she played bass, and I acted in her plays. She actually showed me in that time how to be a full-time creative and to use the details of my life in my work. Three years later, when I was 16, my mother died from cancer. By that time, I was already heavily into drugs and crime. This is what I'd seen my whole life. And her death left me completely traumatised, addicted to drugs, and so broken. The life that I'd lived had also instilled in me such a sense of shame that I believed that I was physically repulsive. I actually thought that I had a physical deformity that repulsed people. I couldn't look anybody in the eye, and I completely lost my smile. I carried everybody's rejection, abandonment, and neglect, which turned into this internal self-hatred. On top of that, at 16, with my mum gone, I had no support. I had no emotional support, and I had no material or financial support. I was on my own, apart from a government payment. The thing is, what I believed about myself became a prison that I lived within. The lies that had been sewn into me, the shame, the rejection, the neglect, coupled with the grief and the trauma and the pain from my mum's death, became the foundation of my life that I stood upon. 
if you believe these types of things about yourself, it's very, very hard to get to any successful place. You have to deal with this internal stuff first. Look, the circumstances that created my pain might be really different from yours. Mine might be worse, or yours might be worse, I don't know. The thing that's common to all of us is the pain, the shame, the loneliness, the isolation, the rejection, the fear. We all feel those things, and it all feels the same for all of us. It's just a matter of degrees. When my mum died, my dreams also died. I wanted to go to university. I loved acting and theatre, writing. I loved photography. All of those things died and shattered within me when she died. What dreams have you let die because you believed a lie about yourself or because the circumstances of your life have conspired against you? The next eight years of my life were spent in a haze of drugs and alcohol that progressively got worse. Four years were spent in an abusive relationship with a drug dealer who would regularly beat me and mentally torment me. When I was 21, I decided that I needed to get away from him and from all of that pain and trauma. So I bought a ticket to London. Uh, I got a working holiday visa, which everybody was doing back then. And with $20 in my pocket, hopped on a plane all alone and flew over to London. Of course, I took everything with me. I arrived. The very day I arrived, I found someone and I used drugs. Within a short amount of time, I'd found another dealer, I moved in with him, and I began to sell drugs in nightclubs in London. Within a year of being in London, I was 42 kilos, overdosing regularly. I had been defibrillated back to life multiple times, and I was going into drug-induced psychosis on a regular basis because I wouldn't sleep for four or five days on end. I knew that I was going to die. I could sense death upon me. I knew if I overdosed one more time, that would be it for me. I tried to get help, and I couldn't find any. And I just had this overwhelming sense of, it is over. There is no hope for me. I want to read you another entry from my mum's diary. 13th of December, 1988. A long time ago, years, she could handle the withdrawals, could even enjoy the feeling of the body purging itself, the return of herself to the place she called normal. The last few times she tried were too hard, the wall had grown so big, there was no way of getting over it. She'd seen an old movie on TV set centuries ago, black and white, about a woman who'd sinned somehow and who was punished by being bricked into a room alive, who fought at first, screamed, clawed till her fingers bled, cried, who, in the end, curled up in a corner and accepted what was. Inevitable that there was no one coming to save her, there was no way out. That's what I believed, that there was no hope. But do you know what? That's another lie. There is hope. There is always hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the hope of all hopes and the king of all kings, and he is a friend to the hopeless, to the lost, to the lonely, and to the dying. So there I was, 
in London, alone, isolated, no help, 42 kilos. If I overdose one more time, I'm going to die. What do I hear? I hear God speak to me. I heard in my heart, not audibly, that would be weird. (laughs) Although I do know people who have heard audibly, so maybe not so weird. But I heard it here in my heart. I heard a voice that said, call out to my son, call out to my son, call out to my son. And it was repetitive and it was relentless. And so I did. I said, Jesus, help me. Within a week of calling out to Jesus, I was arrested. Yeah. But this is the thing. This is my prison ID card. I was at the lowest point in my life, alone, isolated, arrested. But the moment that I walked into that first cell, stepped through those doors, it was literally like God was in that cell waiting for me. I experienced a peace and a love that I had never experienced in my entire life. I knew that it was over, that I could stop running, that I'd run so hard and so fast from my life that I ended up in a cell on the other side of the world with God. He loved me supernaturally at that time. He also loved me through all of the Christian volunteers that began to visit me, as they do in every single prison in the Western world. It was a radically life-changing experience. For the first time in my life, I knew that I was deeply and profoundly loved, and I knew that I was a child of God. Within one month of being locked up in prison, I gave my life to Jesus. I also kept diaries. Uh, I kept daily diaries of my time in prison. And this is an entry that I want to read to you. 9th of October, 1999. Day 34, Wing D2, Holloway Prison, London. 1.35pm. The most important time and day in my life. Newsflash. I've just become a born-again Christian and I feel fabulous. I am tingling tingling all over and I can't stop smiling. Jesus died for me, personally for me, so I don't have to feel any pain or punishment from my past. All my sins are forgiven and I am new. Holy, holy, holy Lord, I love you. Someone told me a story once. In fact, I know who it was. It was my senior pastor's pastor Shane and It was Pastor Georgie, but my senior pastors are Pastor Shane and Georgie Baxter from Enjoy Church, and they actually send me here today with their blessing, which is really exciting. But it was Pastor Georgie when I first met her and told her my story. She said she told me this story. She told me a story about a shepherd who had a flock, and within that flock was a lamb who kept wandering off. One day after he he had to keep going to collect and find this lamb, He broke the lamb's leg and he hung the lamb around his shoulders and for the next few months as the leg of that lamb healed, he carried it around everywhere that he went. Finally, that lamb healed and he was able to put it down again and that lamb never left his side again. 
I served two years in prison. I was sentenced to four and I served two. I used that time to the best of my ability. I did rehab, I did therapy, I made use of every single resource available to me. I did the Alpha course. I began to attend church in prison. I began to read the Bible and pray daily. And I began to unpack all of those lies that I'd been living under, lies such as uh, that I was repulsive, unworthy, unlovable, uh, rejected, abandoned, ashamed. Actually, prison is a window of opportunity. For the first time, so many inmates who have been on drugs for, for years and years and years get in prison and they don't have access to those drugs or alcohol anymore and they're clear-headed, desperate for change at rock bottom. So if anybody has an inclination to do prison ministry, there are fantastic ministries in Victoria Prison Network and Prison Fellowship that you can volunteer through. I can guarantee you that the the women, you would visit the women, the women in prison love the volunteers. They hold them in a special place. I'm fruit of these ministries. The thing is that prison is not necessarily always a physical place with walls, bars, windows and locks. Prisons can be made up of so many things that include loneliness, fear, shame, pride, addictions, porn addictions, gambling addictions, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, all sorts of um, destructive behaviours. And don't think because we're women we escape porn addiction. We don't. People live in prisons while living free in the world. Just like in this room, you could be surrounded by people but be living absolutely in a prison of loneliness. You can appear to be confident while hating yourself inside. You can appear to have it all materially and financially. You can have success and status, but as we've seen so often lately, people that we hold up with these things are committing suicide. You can absolutely have the appearance of freedom while living in the world, but be in complete spiritual chains. You can't live a full life like this. You can't live in your full potential in everything that God has called you to be while living under these lies. What lies are you living under? Because actually for me, my physical prison was the place where I began to first experience freedom. Freedom from the internal prison that I'd been living in for so many years. God needed to get me alone so that he could spend time with me and speak to me and woo me and love me like the shepherd and the wandering sheep. What the world perceives as my ultimate failure was actually the beginning of my freedom from my internal prison and the launching pad into the rest of my life. At 26 years of age, after serving two years in prison, I was released. I was uh, picked up from the prison, escorted to the airport, locked up at the airport, escorted onto a plane and sat on the plane before anybody else got on. This was my first taste of freedom after years. The very first thing that happened to me was one of the cabin crew walked up to me and said, we know where you've come from, Miss Cole, and we don't want any trouble. And I remember saying to her, I'm not going to be any trouble. I just want to go home. 
and tears started to stream down my face. Not like ugly crying, just <laughs> silent, pretty tears. It was a release after all those years. Anyway, I couldn't stop them. So the people begin to get on the plane. They don't know where I've come from. Everybody takes their seats. I'm crying. We take off. I'm crying. We hit altitude. I'm crying. The man next to me goes, are you okay? I said, yes, I just want to go home. He said, here, take these. And he gave me a small handful of Valium, (laughs) which I quickly put in my back pocket. And he gets up and goes somewhere. And while he's gone, one of the cabin crew come back to me and say to me, Miss Cole, can you come with us, please? And I think, oh my gosh, they know I've got the Valium because I've still got the prison mentality. Anyway, and I think I'm going to be in trouble. They take me up to the galley and they say to me, Miss Cole, we're sorry for the situation that you're in. We know that you're not going to be any trouble. We can see that. So we're going to upgrade you to business class. I'm pretty sure I can safely say that I'm the only person ever to have been deported home, upgraded to business class. And I have to give God all the glory because I really feel like he was saying, I am with you, girl, I have got you and I am taking you home. Within a year of being released, I was studying. I was doing a diploma of art and I never went back to that extreme lifestyle that I'd experienced before. I started having exhibitions and I quickly found success. I began using art as a way to figure out who I was. My personality and my identity had been so fragmented through my life that I really didn't know who I was. And I used art as a methodology to figure that out. And initially I was looking at um, surface kind of things like my racial heritage, my cultural experience, relationships that I was having, things that were kind of outside of me. Within five years, my work was at the National Gallery of Victoria. Uh, It was on trams, travelling through Melbourne. I was having national tours of my work and winning multiple awards. The artistic opportunities just kept rolling in uh, nationally and internationally. I was regularly in the press and in 2010 I was named one of Melbourne's top 100 most influential people. Yet I had no peace. I couldn't be left alone with the thoughts in my head. I constantly needed noise and distraction I began to drink heavily and I would use drugs occasionally. I became a functioning alcoholic. Nothing was satisfying me. The success wasn't. The platform that I had wasn't. Trying to find my identity in these these cultural expressions, these racial expressions, none of this was satisfying me. What parts of your identity do you try to find yourself in? Is it in your identity as a wife? as a mum, in your work? Is it even in church in the way that you serve? These are not the things that you need to find your identity in. The truth is, when I was released from prison, I stopped going to church, stopped reading the Bible, stopped praying. And I stopped walking wholeheartedly with God because I stopped doing all of those things. I never stopped believing 
but I kind of lived as this undercover Christian. I was in the world doing all these things, secretly believing in Jesus, not really talking to him. There was a disconnect between my internal life and my external life. And the reason there was a disconnect was because I was so terribly afraid of becoming the thing that I had mocked. I was so scared of what people would think about me. After all, the world that I was a part of, the art world, it's so secular, it glorifies darkness, it loves darkness. The media that, what I, that, that I would read would constantly denigrate, denigrate Christianity and the circles that I moved in hated Christianity. So I thought, I think I'll look for an easier, an easier answer. So I started to look high and low. I looked in uh, self-help, New Age philosophies, Buddhism, these kinds of things. And maybe briefly they would kind of do something for me, but ultimately nothing. Life without God, even with the success, was completely empty. And I couldn't find the sense of love and peace that I'd experienced in prison while walking wholeheartedly with Jesus. So... Seven years after being released from prison, I began to call out to God again and pray earnestly. And I needed to ask myself, who was this Jesus who had loved me so much when I was in prison? Going through a long line of prophets, God has been addressing our ancestors in different ways for centuries. Recently, he spoke to us directly through his son, By his son, God created the world in the beginning and it will all belong to the son at the end. This son perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He holds everything together by what he says. Powerful words. This is my favourite painting of Jesus. Have you seen it before? Yeah, most people have probably seen it. It was painted by a girl called Akian, and she's a Lithuanian child prodigy. She painted this when she was eight years old. She had atheist parents. She lived in the country, so she had no access to Christianity. And through her visions, her poems, and her artworks, her entire family came to know Jesus. So the question I needed to ask myself was, if Jesus perfectly mirrors God's nature, what is God's nature? I'm going to read something to you from Psalm 103, verse 3 to 18. He forgives your sins, everyone. He heals your diseases, everyone. He redeems you from hell, saves your life. He crowns you with love and mercy, a paradise crown. He wraps you in goodness, beauty eternal. He renews your youth. That's good, I like that. You're always young in his presence. God went about his work, opened up his plans to all Israel. God is sheer mercy and grace, not easily angered. He's rich in love. He doesn't endlessly nag and scold, like I do sometimes nor hold grudges forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor pay us back in full for our wrongs. As high as heaven is, he has separated us from our sins. As parents feel for their children, I know how I feel for my children, I would do anything for them. God feels for those who fear him. 
Do you know what fear means in this context? It means to revere, to hold in reverence, in the highest esteem. He knows us inside and out, keeps in mind that we're made of mud. I love that. Men and women don't live very long. Like wildflowers, they spring up and blossom, but a storm snuffs them out just as quickly, leaving nothing to show they were here. God's love, though, is ever and always eternally present to all who fear him, making everything right for them and their children as they follow his covenant ways and remember to do whatever he said. Love it. Such a good picture of his nature. So there I was, successful, having exhibitions all over the world, top 100 most influential people, alcoholic, unhappy, no peace, beginning to cry out to God again when he gives me a brand new revelation. God showed me that I saw myself as the victim and that I justified all of my bad behaviour with my past experience with the life that I'd lived. I would say things like, it wasn't my fault I dealt drugs. Look at my life. It wasn't my fault I ripped people off, hurt them, discarded them. Look at my life. I was selfish. I blamed everybody else. I was a snob, which is weird because I'd been in prison. <laughs> but I still thought of myself as better than other people. I would say, I'm a good person. I've got a good heart. But truthfully, I was not. I was actually a perpetrator of pain from the big things like dealing drugs to the little things like judging people and treating them badly. I was so full of resentment, anger and bitterness. My first encounter with God in prison had been all about love. He showed me how much he loved me and I needed that then. I needed to know that I was loved and that I was lovable. I needed to know that I was not rejected but desired and that I was made in his image. This second encounter, God showed me that I needed forgiveness. I spent the next two years crying out to God in remorse over what I'd done. He showed me all the ways in which I'd hurt others and I'd hurt him. He was gentle with me. He held my hand as he showed me these things. But it was such a shift from constantly blaming everyone else and constantly justifying my behaviours. This was my true point of repentance. And it led me to ask God for forgiveness. And what do you think happened? I got forgiveness freely, without debt, without cost, immediately, undeserved grace, 100%. And it changed me. It meant that I could begin looking at the people in my present and in my past through eyes of forgiveness and grace rather than blame and judgment. The thing is, when something happens to you that hurts you, it disempowers you. And if you hold on to that hurt, it develops into bitterness, resentment, anger. It's like you want to hurt somebody else, but you're drinking poison. 
When you forgive that person or that situation, you take your power back. You are re-empowered and you are no longer beholden to the situation. You are no longer a victim. That's what God showed me. For me, I learned that forgiveness is one of the most powerful tools that God has ever given us. It is the pathway to true freedom. Knowing how much I needed forgiveness, then being forgiven, enabled me to begin freely forgiving others as I had. This is from Romans 2, 3 to 4, and I love, love, love this. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all your misdoings and from coming down on you hard? Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into a radical life change. So eight years ago, I walked through Enjoy Churches, that's my church front door, and I have never, ever looked back. At times, it has been excruciatingly uncomfortable, but I have just held God's hand and I've stepped it out day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And I can stand here before you today and absolutely declare that I am free from loneliness, shame, dissatisfaction, addictions and destructive behaviours. I thought that by becoming a Christian, I would lose who I was. But actually, I've kept my crazy personality, my creativity, and I've gained so much more than I could have ever imagined. I met my husband at church. Uh, my husband has a similar story to me, Danny. He um, grew up in the western suburbs and from an early age began to use drugs got into gangs, uh, was very violent, became a dealer and at a certain point knew that he was going to die as well when God spoke to him. We have a very similar story, although he didn't end up in prison. <laughs> I think he likes that I used to be a bad girl. Um, and he walked into church three years before me, but he had an amazing encounter with God that changed his life almost immediately. I remember when I met him, I was serving at church. I was ushering. They call it, I think we call it hosting now, but he was leading an ushering team. And I, I had to arrive one Sunday morning and go and find him. And so I went and found him and I walked up to him and he goes, Bindi? And I went, yeah. And he goes, <laughs> like Beavis and kind of like, <laughs> like a Beavis and butthead. Can you say butthead in church? <laughs> Anyway, he says that he laughed like that because he was so dumbstruck by my beauty. <laughs> but when he tells the story, he says the other way around, that when I met him, I fell on my knees and started to worship him. So <laughs> I don't know what the truth is. <clears throat> uh, at that time, though, I didn't look at him like he was going to be my husband. I didn't really consider him in that way. It was only after a few months of serving with him that we were there one day on a Sunday and I could see that he was upset. And so 
I thought, I'll go and see if he's okay. And he starts to tell me that the previous night he'd been with his friends. All of his friends at that time he'd met at church and they'd all spent their entire lives in church. He was the only one who'd come in and experienced a radical conversion. So they had a different kind of mentality and they were talking about uh, the relationships that they wanted to have. None of them were in a relationship yet. And the girls that were there all agreed that none of them would ever want to be in a relationship with a man who wasn't a virgin. And so my husband, who wasn't a virgin, he got a little bit upset about this. And so the next day he's telling me this story. And I've got a point to this. <laughs> he's telling me this story. And I turn to him and I go, well, I wouldn't worry. I would never want to be with a man who was a virgin. <laughs> and so he kind of went. <laughs> and what unfolded on that day in that conversation was that he told me what he really wanted in a relationship. And I told him that here I was, an older woman, single, looking for a man that I wanted to marry, that I wanted to be the father of my children, that I wanted to not have intimate relationship with until we were married. And we both went at that point, hi, <laughs> how are you? Nice to finally meet you after we've been serving together for months. But my point is that I actually had believed that those things, being older, wanting a relationship, wanting to do it a, tr a traditional way, was unattractive. I thought the world would tell me those things don't make me attractive to men, they make men want to run. But that's another lie, because the very thing that I thought was unattractive about me was exactly what he was looking for. So if you will trust God, with the, your relationships and, uh, and um, seeking a, a partner, if you don't have one, he will bring the exact right person for you. One of the very first things that I felt called to do um, was to clean out my body of artwork. So as I began to walk wholeheartedly with God, uh, he started to speak to me about some of the work that I'd made. I made a whole lot of work that was very successful. In fact, at the time, it had just been on a national tour around Australia, and it was being organised to go on an international tour. People were trying to buy the entire suite off me for over $100,000, and it was just this really successful work. It was my most successful work. Right as, that happen, as that's happening, God is saying to me, I don't want you to show these works anymore. And so I stopped. I cancelled the shows. I cancelled all future bookings. I stopped selling the work. And I destroyed them. I actually sat down. All of my copies, I destroyed all of them. Being an artist, I made a video of me destroying them. <laughs> So I made an artwork out of me destroying my artwork. Um, and then I went a step further and I destroyed all of my digital files so that they can never, and all of my digital photos, files, printing files, so that they can never, ever come into existence again. They are out there in the world. People had bought them. They're online. I can't remove them. But I played my part in cleaning up my artistic practice. All in all, I probably destroyed more than... 
25 artworks, big artworks. And it changed. It changed the way that I made art. I now pray before I make anything. Sometimes God gives me inspiration. Sometimes he lets me do what I want to do. Uh, but my heart is to make work that stands for eternity. I want to make work that God would hang on his walls. That's my benchmark. I must admit, though, that I was afraid that I would lose my audience. After all, I was an artist who was making art about all of this stuff about identity that the world loves. And then I start making art about Jesus and Christianity. And I thought, oh, this is the end of my career. Truthfully, I did lose a portion of my audience, but a whole new audience came on board. And in fact, since doing that, my work has been in every single major gallery in this country and has gone from strength to strength and glory to glory. I'm going to show you some of my work now. You want to see some? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so this is made out of 10,000 emu feathers. It's 10 metres long, and it was commissioned for the Queensland Art Gallery of Modern Art. My husband and I sat in my garage and hand-stuck every single feather onto it. The cat walked all over it. We ate on it. It's full of crumbs. And then the Queensland Art Gallery sends the couriers down, and they come in with their white gloves. They construct containers there and they pack it all away and they take it off to a temperature-controlled space in Queensland. And, and I think, isn't that just like social media, where we present this absolute pristine version of our lives, but really our lives are covered in cat hair and crumbs. <laughs> This work is called EH5452, which was my prison number. It was in the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. Does anybody know that place? Uh, and it's a prison cell that I've recreated. And I made a video of myself reading uh, from my diary. And essentially, this is my testimony. I read about how I come to know God and give my life to him. In one of the biggest galleries in this country, I installed my testimony. So my work's very contemporary. I don't paint pictures. I make video photography installation. This is a 30-channel video. Uh, everybody in this video is repeating the mantra, I forgive you, over and over and over again. It's really, really a powerful work. Um, I think Rachel's here, you were in it, weren't you, Rachel? <laughs> and everybody was so lovely and vulnerable with me. Uh, I also install that with a wall alongside it where I offer uh, post-it notes, specially made cloud post-it notes where people can write their own messages of forgiveness across this exhibition, which was for the Sydney Biennale, I collected 25,000 messages of forgiveness. Everything from, I'm sorry that my cat pooped on your carpet, <laughs> to, I forgive Hitler for what he's done to the Jews, and everything in between.
This is called A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing, and this was just recently at the National Gallery of Victoria, as was the previous work. Um, and they bought this work, the NGV. This is in their collection. I just never thought that I would make work like this that they would buy. Like it, it just took it to another level. It was so beautifully faithful and eye-opening. Uh, it says, Sometimes I'm ashamed to tell you that I love Jesus. Not because I'm ashamed of Jesus, but because I'm ashamed of the evil things people have done in his name. And I put this photo of my husband in there. Um, just because he loves to get in on my presentations. But just to show you the scale, it's massive. Okay, one of the very last things that I really want to tell you about is something that happened to me not long after I met my husband. We were serving at our church for our national yearly, no, our yearly conference, the summit, both of us were ushering. We served the entire conference. Uh, it was the last session on the last day, and I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to go to the altar and I'm going to worship during worship in this session. And at the time, I had sciatica in my back, and I thought, I'm going to ask God to heal my sciatica. So the music starts, and I run down to the altar and I put my hands up, and I'm like, Lord, heal me, heal me, I'm here, heal me, heal me. And I hear here my spirit go, God, I forgive you, I forgive you, God, I forgive you, God. And I'm like, yes, Lord, I forgive you, Lord, I forgive you, Lord, I forgive you, Lord. <laughs> what is going on? This is so weird. Anyway, I keep worshipping and I finish and I go down because when you're ushering, you sit right at the back, right at the back. And I, and I say to my husband, the weirdest thing just happened to me. I was worshipping and I heard my spirit forgive God. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, that's weird, I don't know about that. <laughs> and I thought, okay. And so we sit down. The speaker, the preacher comes onto the platform and he walks out and the very first thing he says is, I want to tell you about the time God asked me to forgive him. At that point, I start crying. He starts crying. He grabs my hand. We're sitting there. There's no one there anymore. There's just us and God speaking to us. And he says, I am so sorry for everything that you have ever gone through. And I can never give it back to you. But I am going to give you a whole new life all new friends. I'm going to give you a purpose and a plan and a path to walk that far surpasses anything that you could ever build for yourself. Undid me, ruined me. And it was at that moment that I truly knew there was no going back and I truly knew who God was. Trust you enjoyed this week's message. For any more information about Activate Church, check out our website www.activatechurch.com or download our app online and have a great week.